Hello and welcome to Tops 10, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer engineer, and I'm David Perlmutter, professor at and dean of the college and the originator and host of Tops 10. Now, today we have a special guest, but we also have a special, different kind of discussion. Our guest is Professor Larry Schweikart from the University of Dayton, Department of History. Dr. Schweikart is famous for many things. Uh, Prior to becoming academics, he was a rock drummer for several bands. Uh, one of them reached a big-time concert level as the opening act for Steppenwolf. And I, I am old enough to have bought, like, Steppenwolf albums. Are some of our younger listeners may need to go to Wikipedia to see what that is. But they would definitely have to yeah, look up yeah. Born to be Wild, yeah. Yeah. And, and what an album is, too, yeah. <laughs> record for James Gang, The Mother's Finest and Other Groups. The group single, Didn't Want to Have to Say Goodbye to You, was played on Los Angeles radio stations and Billboard. Dr. Schweiker quit the road in 1976, tired of starving and driving. Why would anybody be tired of starving? I, I don't know. That year, he returned to Arizona State to obtained a teaching certificate and went on to get further education and then eventually became a professor. He, in 2000, this is, you you probably are much more famous for this than what we're going to talk about today, but you wrote the New York Times number one bestseller, A Patriot's History of the United States, which is now adopted in more than 30 colleges and universities and hundreds of high schools and other books about American history. And you you still teach history at University of Dayton. For one more semester before I retire. But you're here on campus because we have a very, very exciting special event that's uh, co-sponsored by our college and the Free Market Institute. And we're very happy to uh, co-invite you to campus, and you're going to be talking tonight. You are talking about something that I just didn't know existed until I saw years ago a documentary that you produced about it, and that is Rock and the Wall, about rock music's part in bringing down the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, which appeared on PBS. So what's different about our format today, Professor, is that these presumably are songs you you may like some of them, but they're not your favorite songs necessarily, but they were songs that were part of the milieu of songs that was played behind the Iron Curtain during the period of communist rule. Right, and sort of as an introduction, maybe we'd want to hear, uh, didn't want to have to say goodbye to you, because that was our only claim to fame at the time, and we got uh, on L.A. radio, it was a great thrill to be driving into L.A. for a gig and hear K100 play that song. But um, these are songs that, uh, one way or another, affected people behind the Iron Curtain. Now, I was asked, what are the 10 most important songs? And I really thought I couldn't come up with 10 most important because, first of all, it depended on where you were getting the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe from, and when you were hearing it. And and so different places would get different pieces of music at different times. And and so the the Beatles might be coming in in, into Germany and Poland, and Simon and Garfunkel might be coming in someplace else. But the other very important thing is beyond Radio Free Europe and Voice of America, the only Western music these people could get would be music that was smuggled in, brought in illegally by friends, relatives, uh, tourists. Tourists frequently would bring music in and and, and sell it. So um, I tried to select uh, a number of songs here that 
were referred to in the film by, by some of the artists, such as uh, Break On Through to the Other Side by the Doors, when Robbie Krieger was talking about how our Break On Through is very much like them trying to break through the Berlin Wall, break through the Iron Curtain. Well, let's talk about the logistics of it. So I'm uh, a young man in the 1980s in Bulgaria. Right. And I'm interested, fascinated by American rock and roll. What are my options to actually hear American rock and roll since I can't leave Bulgaria to go to a concert in London? You're so first there's smuggling of like a tape. Right. right? So now these were not, so th- this was stuff that was not sold. You could not go to a store and buy the Beatles or no. the Pink Floyd, the Walls. So you could not buy any American rock and roll. There were no record stores at the time, and there were no stores that sold jeans or blue jeans. There was a huge black market for that. So someone would have to bring it in, and American tourists very quickly found out that there was a market for this. For example, Gabe Baum, our Romanian, who was actually a record collector, uh, more than just somebody who would take whatever he got. He, he deliberately went out and tried to collect albums, and then he framed them and kept them. And his first album was Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. And he paid 150 U.S. dollars for that in and the this ni- is 19... 1970s. Oh, so, I mean, it's it, th- three, 400 today. Correct. Inflation. He yeah. said it was a month's wages. Wow. And that was the going rate, he said, for any American rock album. Kind of stunning when you think that our, our students today balk at paying 99 cents on iTunes for a song. So physically purchasing the album, but you could also hear the music from Radio Free Europe, from Voice of America. Right. If you had a radio and were willing to go to that station and get and perhaps get in trouble for listening to that station. Well, right. and so the key was, if you listened to Voice of America, as soon as you were finished, you not only unplugged the radio, turned it off, but you turned the dial back to the communist radio station so that if the police came to your door and they come in, they want to look at your radio, you've been listening to the good communist station, not this evil American rock and roll stuff. Maybe it's self-evident, but if I were the uh, minister of culture of Bulgaria or Poland or the Soviet Union, what exactly is my objection to our children listening to the Beatles' Let It Be or, or Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA? Actually, taking Born in the USA as an example. So I grew up in, uh, for at least part of my teen years, in Philadelphia in the Bruce Springsteen era. So mm-hmm. Bruce Springsteen is part of my playlist. And we've talked about before on this show how there's a lot of research about there about generational preferences of music, of basically you fall in love with with kinds of music and certain musicians between the ages of, say, 13 and 26, and that remains fixed for the rest of your life. I mean, you pretty much just listen to those people forever and ever. And that's certainly true with me, with uh, Bruce Springsteen and Bob Seger and people like that. So what exactly, if we're having the Ministry of Culture, you're the Minister of Culture of the Soviet Union in 1976. What is your objection to Bruce Springsteen born in the USA? I don't think I'm getting the date right, but what's your objection to born in the USA? Okay, well, first of all, Soviet Union had a Ministry of Culture, but they actually had a Ministry of Rock. And the Ministry of Rock was uh, tasked with controlling rock and roll. And the way they did it, in part, was... um, 
to bring bands into the fold, the comedy. Are we fold. sure this wasn't the guy who just loved rock and this was his excuse <laughs> to listen to it? Yeah, I've got to listen to these terrible American records all day long. This is horrible. What a well, tough what, job. Actually, but part of his job was to listen to the really horrible Russian songs. Um, if you want an idea of, uh, of what kind of stuff they produced, in 1986, there's a CD you can buy called Red Wave for bands from the Soviet Union. And it's terrible. But you can tell all the American influences that they're they're working. You know, they're like where we were back in maybe 62 or so. They're kind of working on it. Their big so, hit was All You Need Is Tractors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, if you're in the Ministry of Rock, you would give subsidies for food and housing to bands who would toe the line, to bands who would play pro-Soviet propaganda songs. If you fell outside of that and were not approved by the Ministry of Rock, you literally would starve. You, you would have no place to stay. So it was a very serious carrot and stick. Thing. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize that. that. That's a very, very good point you're saying, because I think for people who grew up in that era, all we heard about was the stick. That that the, the uh, and, and I didn't hear any, this is a completely new story you're telling about the music, but I, but the Samizdat, you know, the secret mm-hmm. literature that was smuggled, that was sort of passed around. And remember, this was the era before computer copies and things right. like that. So the hand copied, that this stuff, if you were caught with, you know, Western propaganda of whatever form you were going to be punished, but we forget that the approved artists were heavily subsidized, whether it's ballet or visual arts or rock and roll. So there was, it wasn't that they banned rock and roll, it's just that they wanted their rock and roll with their message. That's right. right? And uh, as Leslie Mandoki, who's in our our movie, he was a... uh, drummer in Hungary, student activist. He eventually escapes from Hungary and goes into uh, Germany and becomes a major uh, record producer, music producer in Germany, writes a lot of the original music for Audi and Volkswagen. And uh, Leslie Mandoki talks about a song style called The Rat Tale. The Rat Tale is a song, uh, or Sami's Dot political track, that was written to get by the censors. And it was written in such a way it looked like you were criticizing the United States, evil, imperialist, militaristic, blah, blah, blah. But everybody who heard the song knew you were talking about the Soviets. And so the censors would approve it, and yet, without knowing it, they were approving anti-Soviet songs. Well, let's listen to the first track, uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, obviously very important song. Maybe we'll use that as an example, because I want to talk about that in another tradition of a song that may originally in the United States or Western American British context have been about one thing, but was read very differently behind the Iron Curtain.
So let's take Pick for the Wall. It's a song when I was growing up. And by the way, this is also something very interesting for people of a younger generation. At that time, we did not have something called the Internet. So if you wanted to know the exact words to a song, you had to take the effort, which most teenagers did not do, of buying the <laughs> lyric sheet to read it. And so like a lot of people of my generation, we didn't find out the exact words to songs that, which were mumbled or, or spoken over, mu- over music until decades later. So I always thought Pink Floyd and the Wall, well, it, it was a song about the oppression and regimentation of school and, and obey, you know, obey authority and how you should rebel against obeying authority in the context of the British and, and United States school system. Right. <laughs> okay, so I'm a teenager in Czechoslovakia. What am I hearing? You first had Plastic People of the Universe in Czechoslovakia. That was a homegrown Czech band, led the Velvet Revolution, very, very powerful. We do not have them in this movie, um, but they, they were an influential group in terms of developing a homegrown resistance music. And by the way, you hear some of these bands, and we say it's rock and roll, and I'm, I'm being generous. It's, it's a broad, big tent. Because, uh, for example, some of the Soviet bands, I would have drum, bass, guitar, but they also had violin, lute, mandolin, uh, sort of like, uh, you know, Dolly Parton meets, uh, you know, Metallica or something. I don't know. Uh, so um, in Czechoslovakia, you're going to be listening to uh, The Wall. You're going to be listening to The Doors. You're going to be listening to Vanilla Fudge. You're going to be Michael Jackson. Uh, our Bulgarian guy in the movie talks about how his sister said, don't even tell my parents. Have you ever heard of this guy's name is Michael Jackson? The Beach Boys. Uh, all of this Western music uh, was coming in. And and so um, there's a great book, though, called Excuse Me While I Kiss This Guy. And and it's a book about rock lyrics that everybody misunderstands. And uh, I'm laughing so hard I can hardly answer your question because when we were rockers, the only way we could learn the lyrics to a song was to drop the needle over and over and over. Well, when you're talking about the Rolling Stones, you wear out a record before you ever figure out what Mick Jagger's saying. Next song you listed is uh, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. So this is an example, uh, a song which, if you don't listen to it, except for a few of the words, you think is a patriotic song. That's right. But it's a pretty stinging critique of of one period in American life. It's an anti-war song. Yeah. Yeah. But, again, I'm I'm trying to understand what the teenager is reading into it behind the Iron Curtain when they're hearing this. Okay, well, first of all, realize that there have been studies that, that I cite in Seven Events That Made America that um, that most people only understand somewhere in the, uh, in the neighborhood about 40% of a rock song's lyrics under the best of circumstances. Many don't get any of them except some of the chorus lines. Born in the USA is a classic example. Uh, you might not understand a single word in the rest of them, but born in the USA, and as Leslie Mandoki t- told us, they wanted to be born in the USA. They loved America, and, and to them, this song, they didn't want to listen to This song was what they wanted to hear, so the, the famous story about this is that Springsteen is invited to give a concert in East Berlin in 1988, and the commissars think he's going to come in and, and do his liberal left-wing 
threatening attack on America. And Springsteen surprises him by saying, uh, I'm not here to praise or, or blame any system. I'm here to play rock and roll music. And he plays Born in the USA, and there's 80,000 communist youths going, Born in the USA. And they go, oh, we have failed. It's terrible. You know, it's the wrong message. Uh, of course, now, these people may not speak English as well, right? That's they, right. They may not. I mean, they may recognize a few words like born in USA, but That's right. not enough to understand the, the, the cultural references, the nuances, and certainly the individual uh, words of the lyric aside from some of the major ones. Well, right? and the, going back to an earlier point, because I don't think I really answered this. We got off on something else, but you were saying, what would they have to fear about some of these lyrics? Right. Uh, what were they concerned about? And um, they're concerned about lyrics related to showing that capitalism is good, that freedom is good. And so our Bulgarian uh, witness in the film, a finance professional now, but uh, as a kid, he was uh, living in Bulgaria, and they would have something called the Anti-Beatles Brigade. And all the kids at school, certain days of the month, we gathered up and they would be given a lecture about how terrible capitalism in America is. And then while that, that was going on, somebody out in the yard would, would put in chalk or paint on the walls a peace symbol, write the words Beatles, yeah, 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 or something like that. And the kids would have to go out with scrub brushes and literally scrub and remove the images of evil capitalism. And that was kind of a purgative thing they did once or twice a month. I've always thought teenagers the whole world over have certain interests and motivations, especially male teenagers. That's right. Uh, we don't need to recite them here. It's a family show. <laughs> so when they're looking at an American rock star, besides the song, they've already figured out that Mick Jagger or Bruce Springsteen are rich and get lots of girls. That's right. <laughs> and they have, and like, have cars. fancy stuff. Yeah, they have cars, cars and boats and they seem to be enjoying themselves so it must have been pretty hard to say and that's bad that's really bad you <laughs> shouldn't horrible. want any of those things right <laughs> yeah that's right that's that was the message that they had to tell them and 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 it didn't work i mean they they just uh, gabe bomb our, our our guy from romania said anything that was good anything that was that was meaningful anything that was new and cutting it was always coming from the west so they they understood that they they weren't stupid they knew what was going on but in bulgaria for example if you even wore tight jeans, the police could come up on the street and strip them off of you. Or if a girl wore a ponytail, uh, it was considered, uh, you know, too Western or decadent, and they cut her ponytail. So that's what makes it all the more interesting to me that they start having these debates in Voice of America about what should be beamed over. And at the time, they're sending over, uh, you know, classical music and, and uh, orchestral, you know, Brahms, Beethoven, whatever. High culture music. High culture, yes. And there was a group that said, we need to be sending over rock and roll. And they said, it's degenerate. And so there was a debate that went on. Just as there was a debate going on over there, we need to keep this degenerate music out. There was a debate. We need to keep this degenerate music from being shipped over there. And, of course, the pro rock and rollers won the debate because they understood that it was about more than lyrics. And, and this is the key to the whole movie. Rock and roll music is distinctly American, and it's a distinctly freedom music because you start together as a band and you end as a band, but what does every rock and roll song have in the middle? The solo. And you get to show your individuality, and that came across whether or not you could understand the lyrics. So the government-approved bands, besides 
not being very good. Right. Did they, I mean? Did they not have solos? I mean, did they did they have anything else that contrasted besides talent? They actually did have solos, and that's why I think that the the Soviets and the others still weren't understanding what the real appeal of of rock and roll was. Yes, there was certainly that element of. These guys are rich. They're getting the girls. They've got the cars. Uh, but but there was all, also this other element about the structure of the music that, that was totally beyond them. next song is uh, Break On Through by The Doors. Break On Through where? Uh, of course, for The Doors, it was Break On Through in terms of your love relationships and sex and, and just you're, you're becoming a more wholesome person. But Robbie Krieger in the movie says, you know, break on through, like Jim said, uh, to the Iron Curtain. Uh, so, so it can become a kind of, kind of uh, anthem to breaking out of the, the stifling conditions that they're under. You know, I'm in my 50s. Uh, you're a very young man. I'm guessing a, a few, uh, just a one or two years older than me. A little me. bit older. Uh, but we grew up with this history. It's important to know we, in our show we have viewers of all ages. The communist revolution began in the Soviet Union. And at that time, there were many members of the intelligentsia, of the arts community, that embraced the revolution, right. thinking that along with the freedom, economic freedom and freedom from the oppression of whether it was the czar or monarchy or militarism would also come freedom for artistic expression. And, you know, the, the revolutions always eat their own children and the intelligentsia are the first to go against the wall. That doesn't stop them from, from right. embracing revolution as much as sometimes they've done today. I remember years ago, I was a PhD student at University of Minnesota, and we had a very interesting guest uh, professor for a semester. He had been the director of the Marxist-Leninist Institute or Marx-Lenin Institute in Beijing, mm-hmm. but in 1989, he had sided with the students and had to leave. There was no longer persona grata in right. uh, China. And he talked about his profound rejection <laughs> of what he'd been the director of including the fact that he was just surprised that so many artists and intellectuals in the West over and over again kept thinking that somehow through an oppressive government there would be some sort of liberation, right. but, it, but it never occurs, never, ever. Right. 
So fast forward, you know, 50 years or so, right, after the Soviet revolution in, in the, a drab and dreary Bulgaria or, or Czechoslovakia or, or Soviet Union. What did you do if you were an artist and you actually wanted to express your, your true thoughts and feelings? Was there's no, were there no channels there or, or were you just basically stuck between being starving and free or, you know, on, on the payroll and having a dacha? Well, Leslie Mandoki in our film and asks and answers that specific question. And he said, in Hungary, you, you, you had three options. And one was to escape and merely planning the escape if they learned of it was a five-year prison term just for thinking about the escape, become a collaborator or as he put it, dive into the Hungarian Bermuda Triangle, girls, goulash, and, and vodka. So he chose to escape. So really, you were stuck. You either become a collaborator, work with the system, encourage them, or, uh, or escape. Because the other, the other chance was you're not going to do anything. Did you interview any of the collaborators? I sort of, you know, where are they now? You know, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I mean, are I did these not. people like like still working in the music business? Are they, you know, shopkeepers? What are they doing now? The people who were That's a, in the no. approved band. We could not interview everyone, and no, we unfortunately did not yeah. get any of the people who worked with the system. But none the, of them are like famous and still living off the, residuals I, or no, something. No, the most famous one is a guy named uh, Wolf. Uh, I cannot remember his first name, but he was an East Berliner. And he was very critical of the communist system, yet he fully believed in communism. And he was so critical, they finally said, get out. And they exiled him to West Berlin. And from West Berlin, he was still talking about how great communism was while attacking certain elements of the communist system. It, it's truly remarkable. You know, the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide. Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side, yeah We chased our pleasures here Dug our treasures there But can you still recall the time we cried Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side Break on the 
the Beatles. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Beatles by far were the, the best known band behind the Iron Curtain. One of our, our people told a story of, um, it was Leslie Mandoki, of how uh, the BBC had a Beatles concert that was broadcast behind the Iron Curtain on a Saturday night. And uh, on Monday morning, the teacher asked the students, and how was the Beatles concert? And two or three of the students who had not been well-trained by their parents raised, oh, it was wonderful, oh, it was great. So, and their parents got picked up that afternoon by the police. And when we tell that story today, you can hear audible gasps from modern-day students who just can't believe that. But, yeah. but that's the way things were. The suspicion that is wrought in those kind of societies was so poisonous. I, I remember reading stories about East Germany, the files of the Stasi, the secret police there, about it, it seemed like one third of East Germany was watching the other third that was unsure who was watching them. I mean, right. the, the, the collaborator culture was so pernicious and so pervasive. And it, um, of the many evils of, the, of communist society, that was one of them. Well, we have a, a woman in the film, um, who Uli Kampelman, who, who East, was an East German, and um, she learned uh, after she escaped to the West that one of her close friends was a Stasi spy. And and this is one that falls under the heading, you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. In our interview with her, I said, well, have you seen your Stasi files? I've seen it. I have it right here. And she pulled out a stack maybe this big, and she was only in her late teens or early 20s when she got out. And her, her spy stack was six inches thick. It, so the, it, it's just incredible the amount of spying that was going on. I remember reading uh, a biography of Stalin. And they talked about the N, what was then the NKVD before it became the KGB, that they had to meet quotas of traitors. Yeah. And if they didn't meet the quotas, then, okay, then you become the traitor and you, you go to the gulag. So it was just a self-perpetuating dragon eating its own tail. Right. And uh, it was incredibly sad that any society led itself to uh, that, that depth. She loves you, yeah.
Sage, Rosemary, and Time by Salmon and Garfunkel. Well, the story behind this is that Gabe Baum, as I told you, this was the first record that he was able to buy from the West. And uh, we wouldn't consider it a heavy rock album today. It's kind of very light rock. Um, but uh, we mentioned that he paid $150 US for it. And um, it goes to the point of what people were willing to give up to acquire albums like this. Um, they were incredibly valuable, as were blue jeans. And, uh, you know, everybody who could got a hold of a pair of blue jeans. Let me ask you, you had mentioned that Voice of America had originally been playing classical music. Right. Was that considered non-controversial by the Minister of Culture? I mean, if somebody played Brahms, that was okay? To an extent, um, uh, Shostakovich, of course, was hugely controversial. And as we point out in our second film, Other Walls to Fall, uh, he was uh, uh, very nearly arrested. Uh, he had to change the subtitle of one of his, uh, of his symphonies to kind of stay out of jail. But even then, he was so con- uh, convinced he was going to be picked up that he slept in the stairwell so that when the police came to get him, he wouldn't disturb his family sleeping inside. So uh, with some exceptions, yeah, uh, classical was considered okay. Because it doesn't have lyrics, or I mean, it, it was certainly produced on, in an era of monarchist uh, capitalism, I mean, right? So, I mean, right? Did they just sort of drop that part, or well, and there were a lot of Russian composers, so you could get by yeah. with playing, you know, a Russian heavy playlist, right? And, and and I mean, the Bolshoi Ballet would do pre-Soviet Union ballets as right. well, so there's just something there. So, it was some, what, what, what about other forms of? We've been talking about rock and roll, mm-hmm. but I mean. Country music, uh, jazz, how did they fall under? Country did not the get into the, the East Block at, at all for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, jazz, much different story. In the 50s, uh, the Eisenhower administration realized that jazz would be a great ambassador. Uh, of America internationally. And so they sent Louis Armstrong and his band on an international jazz tour. And and the visuals of that were very important to combating the notion that America was racist because here you have a band led by a black man and it's the music that everybody wanted to hear. It's a very popular tour. So that was more acceptable by the Iron Curtain folks? Right. Yeah. And also more projected right. by the USA. Right. That that came as close as we ever got to government government sanctioning of music. So there was obviously a, a debate going on in uh, Voice of America that there were songs that were patriotic songs, right? I mean, right. especially when you're thinking country music. I mean, there's go back in time. There were many pro-America songs. You know, I love America songs. Did they purposely not play? That kind of music, right? You were not sort of foregrounding, right? 
love of the United States and the free, free democratic system? You, you didn't want to give people who were on the cusp a reason to say, oh, this is just American propaganda. So you're not going to send over Ballad of the Green Berets by Sergeant Barry Sadler, you know. Um, so, yes, uh, they tried to avoid overtly patriotic American songs and rather just kind of play songs, especially that the kids would like. Are you going to Scarborough Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one who lives there. She once was a true love of mine. Tell her to make me a cambric shirt to the deep forest green. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and I was reading years ago one of George Orwell's essays, uh, the author of 1984 and Animal Farm, and sort of there before he died at the beginning of the, the Cold War. During World War II, among the many things he did was that he did a regular radio show for the BBC that was broadcast in the colonies. And there was a discussion, I'm seeing a parallel here to what you're talking about, and there was a discussion, okay, well, we're fighting this war for Britain's existence. I mean, this is, this is the, a titanic battle to decide the future of the world. We sort of need India on our side. <laughs> what should we be broadcasting to India? And, the, and as you, there was also a range of debate. We should be broadcasting propaganda, like, you know, why the British side is better than the German side, and you shouldn't sympathize with the Germans just because they're not colonizing you. But the eventual decision, which I think uh, Orwell mostly endorsed, was to have just straight culture discussion. I mean, let's read Nicholas Nickleby and discuss it, or interesting art exhibition is in London. In other words, just talk about the most interesting things going on in culture today and yesterday in British Western civilization. Do you see a parallel to what the decision of Voice of America was of not to make it heavy-handed of the other side? Right. Uh, One one of the guys we interview um, is a um, former... Uh, Reagan, Voice of America lawyer, and um, he said that uh, when they tried to do the news, they tried to do it warts and all. They tried to tell the the full story about what was going on in America with the race riots and uh, you know civil rights marches, things like that, so that they couldn't be accused of just blasting propaganda. I read uh, an essay by uh, Ann Applebaum, the New York Times correspondent, who's written a lot about the former Poland 
former East Block, and uh, I think I'm getting her name right. And she made an interesting point that was, there was obviously a, a tremendous euphoria throughout these countries with the collapse of communism. It's always interesting to me how you have these systems which day one seem very popular and then the curtain collapses and it's almost like you can't find anybody who is actually for the system. I mean, nobody will admit that they were a true believer. Uh, the best example of that I love to talk to my students was um, Nicolae Ceausescu, the dictator of Romania. I mean, literally, he's having a yet another rally where 800,000 people are saying, yes, my great leader, we obey you. And an hour later, he's on the run, and he can't even find one helicopter pilot, he can't even find one person to guard him, and he's eventually, he and his wife are executed uh, there. Is it some sort of uh, nuclear explosion where just every particle starts interacting with everyone, where the, just the collapse is so complete? I mean, you take an example, Nazi Germany died hard. Right. You know, it, it, there was not, the, to the very end, yeah. there were millions, even uh, millions of people who were willing to fight to the end right. for, the, for Nazi Germany. I mean, the, the Russians lost something like 300,000 men just taking Berlin at 20 to 1 odds. But yet the entire Soviet bloc seemed to collapse with just a few paroxysms of violence, but generally just nobody. It was, it was, it was so right. anticlimactic, the fall of communism. Well, and uh, while our film is about rock and roll, music, culture, we can't forget that there was a very powerful and ongoing cons uh, constant struggle from Truman on through uh, George H.W. Bush, to militarily stop the Soviets from expanding, to check them whenever they did, uh, to do whatever you can to prevent a war, but don't let them get more territory, to make them live with their system. And, and it's very interesting because Lenin writes this book called Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, which he, he says capitalist countries have to expand to get more markets to survive. Without those markets, they'll die. It's the exact opposite. A capitalist system can be very small because we have constant needs for new and different products. And so you can go on. You don't need more shoes or to have everybody, you know, whenever he has one pair of shoes, that's it. You can't be more. No, you have different shoes. But... What was true was that the Soviet Union was constrained by Lenin's dictum. If it could not expand, it was going to collapse. So partially the military structure is like an octopus pulling on a, on a clam, and you have this constant pressure, 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 and, and so music and the rest of it helps erode the, the muscles holding that clam together, and, and so it opens up very quickly. But it was a 40-year struggle. We cannot, uh, I think, just just cast off and say, oh, yeah, and then, then there, there were the bombers and the tanks and stuff, but, you know, they didn't play a role. No, they played a very key role, and that's what allowed this peaceful revolution to take place.
Next song you list is Africa by Toto. Now, of course, Africa, to the great detriment uh, and unfortunateness of Africa, was one of the chessboards of the the great struggle. And right. many revolutions, wars, counter-revolutions, civil wars in Africa were proxy wars, with Cuba playing a role, fighting uh, as uh, some ground troops for the Soviet Union and elsewhere. Tell us about this song, because you were mentioning before about jazz being an example of sort of the diversity of music in the United States, Africa by Toto. Well, one of the reasons we put it in is because one of our, our key witnesses is David Page, keyboard player of Toto. Uh, he would talk about the incredible reception they got over there uh, when, when they went over and how people just uh, uh, had loved their music, but they couldn't find that out till they actually got over there and the wall had fallen. So it goes back to your previous point about not knowing how much was being eroded because uh, uh, it was you had no feedback loop. You had no way of polling people in the Soviet Union. What are your favorite bands? I hear the drums echoing tonight And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation She's coming in 12.30 flights Reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation I stopped an old man along the way Hoping to find some old forgotten words Or ancient melodies He turned to me as if to say Hurry boy, it's waiting there for you The challenge of a free and open society is that anybody can look at it and see what's going on. So if you were in the Soviet Union, you could just turn on the news and you would see a race riot. Right. You would see, uh, you know, some sex scandal of a politician. You would see all the dirty linen of America right there. And so you could easily imagine if you were in the Soviet Union, in the leadership, you go, wow, decadent, on the edge of collapse, horrible. Whereas... You saw nothing of that. That's right. This reporter from New York Times, Applebaum, talks about, you know, that you would hear never any bad news. Everything was wonderful. Everything was everything was great in the Soviet Union or Poland or whatever. You right. hear no bad news. And so you begin to b- believe your own propaganda. Like, well, yeah, everything must be wonderful here with just a few dissidents. And it's, all, look, th- the Americans are about to collapse. I always tell my students, you know, we, we social scientists are f- fantastic retrodictors. We can tell you why 
something in the past happened. But we're terrible predictors, and the best example of that is that once upon a time, you may be familiar, there was an American Association of Soviet Studies scholars. <laughs> and they had a yearly conference with thousands of people and lots of journals. And as I understand it, the year the Soviet Union collapsed, their theme was not why we won't be meeting next year. <laughs> the, Almost none. I think it was a friend of mine did this research. There was only two or three scholars. I mean, Reagan, you know, it was a politician, but there were very, very few scholars that actually predicted. In fact, in my file somewhere, I remember my father had an article, not by him, but somebody had written an article for some prestigious journal, you know, Gorbachev the next 25 years. Mm-hmm. He didn't mean Gorbachev in exile or Gorbachev you That's know, right. living on a pension. He meant, like, you know, in power for 25 years. What was going on that we... In the academic community, I'm going to just single out us, professors, we're so completely wrong in absolutely every way about the future of the struggle between the Soviet Union and the U.S. I, I can't answer that, and, and I can, but I can reinforce it and tell you that after the wall fell, you may remember that, that Bush and, and many world leaders were hesitant to jump, jump in and say, that's great, the wall's coming down, you know, or, or when... when uh, the Soviet Union had their election, and Gorbachev was kicked out. He got 5% of the vote. And all the Western reporters were telling him, hey, it's in the bag. You got this with 75% of the vote. And, and so even after these things occurred, there was a, a lag time in the West where, where uh, policymakers were afraid to acknowledge it for fear that the KGB had come right back, snatch it back, and, and they'd look foolish. Uh, you know, here we were supporting another uh, Kerensky, or here we were supporting another landing at Archangel in World War One, and there was never any hope of, well, well, of course, the whole revolution could have been nipped in the bud had just a few different things happened, had just a couple of those generals cooperated with each other, you wouldn't have even known who Joseph Stalin was. But, but the, these are the ifs and buts and ands of history, you know. Uh, but it's a fascinating question as to why so many scholars did that. From the Russian side, I had a much different experience. I went to Germany in 1990. One of the things that we were charged with doing is we were meeting with Soviet economists from the boards that actually ran the Soviet economy. And I sat down with a group of them, and and this is under Gorby. They're trying to become more free. They're trying to liberalize. And they said, so how would you do it? How would you privatize the companies and adopt a free market system. I said, well, it's easy. You take the value of a company, arrive at some value, let's say 12 million rubles, take the number of employees in that company, divide the company by the number of employees, give them each a share. There, Monday morning, government announces all these people will have X percent of this company. Boom. They said, you don't understand. Nobody believes the government about anything. I had never thought of that. Because we are so used, even when we question things today about what the government says about this, that, or the other, nevertheless, most people think, well, the government more or less is telling the truth. That they say that unemployment is 5%. It's probably got to be at least close to 5%. Or there's military operations in Syria. We don't. We, we know there are, but you know, we don't maybe know exactly what, but we don't believe that like, Syria doesn't exist. We just made it up. Right. You know, that, that Nor do we think that the whole Third Army is marching through Syria either. We know yeah. better than that. Yeah. We know it's, it's not on the far end of either extreme.
hear any song by Billy Joel. Uh, Billy Joel was the first American since Van Cliburn to play in Moscow. And um, uh, we were supposed to get him in our film. And he had agreed to appear. And he had back surgery at the time that we needed to get him. And the window was just too big for us to get him in. But he told me that when he played there, uh, he was struck by how the police and the soldiers had tranquilizer darts and tranquilizer guns. And they were told that if the kids got out of hand, they were to dart them. <laughs> I said, did they censor you in any way? He said, no, they let me play any song I wanted, but they told me, whatever you do, the kids must stay in their seats. You must not call them down to the front. He said, so you know what I did? I go, yeah, you call them down to the front. He says, first song. <laughs> so th- that that was Billy Joel's story. And they didn't have enough darts for all 20,000. He said the there. soldiers were throwing their hats in the air with everybody else. It, it really is uh, fascinating, the story that you're telling. I urge everyone to see The Rock and the Wolf, which is available, I assume, you can... iTunes yeah. and uh, Amazon, yes. Great. Well, thank you very much, for pre- Professor, for joining us. You've told uh, an unknown story, but a very, very important one that has a, a moral lesson that I think that rings through the ages as we pass away from the actual era in which these events happened and you know not to well this is a song about music so i'm going to wax lyrical and poetic here and say that there's just something in human beings that they want to be free and that oppression can be created and it can be successful for years for decades it can seem to have an an iron facade of, of eternity but it, at the end all the dictators all the apparatchiks seem to end up you know for either tossed aside by history or, you know, shot against the wall. Uh, you think of all these dictators, uh, Gaddafi, uh, Ceausescu, Saddam Hussein, you know, they had their heyday. Yep, they did. They they had controlled hundreds of thousands, millions of people, you know, jumped when they coughed, and they all ended up rats in a hole, you know, begging for their life. Well, to quote, um, to quote the rascal shouting from the mountain clear out to the sea, people everywhere just got to be free. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Rick. Join us at Texas Tech. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Scooter, Baker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. Rosenberg's H-bomb, Sugar Ray, Panmunjom, Randall, the King and I. Oceano Liberace 
Let's go.